Hey, welcome back to Coffee with Coasties. I'm your host, Joe Nemeth. I've got my co-host over here, Kelsey Sider. Hey, hey. How's it going, Kelsey? It's going. Good. We're excited. In studio today is Senior Chief Jason Miller, Station Riceville Beach. How you doing, Senior? I'm good, guys. Thanks for having me on. It's cool. Good. First things first, how do you take your coffee? <laughs> well, I used to take it black, but I actually gave up coffee several years ago. Oh, no. The doctor well, told me it was is... bad for my blood pressure. So. Oh, no. <laughs> this will now be the shortest episode ever. Thank okay, you for well, joining well, us. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> Check no, us out no. on Facebook. I got, I, got my wa- I got my water, though. That's okay, fine. It's so a good substitute Water for with coffee's here today. There you go. I take it with, with ice. Coasties. All right. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for coming out. We appreciate Absolutely. you coming out. So... So I kind of spilled the beans a little bit, right? Your station, Wrightsville Beach. But yep. tell us about your position and what you're doing over there. So I'm the officer in charge at the station. Um, and in the Coast Guard, we're, we're unique in that we are the only military service that has completely enlisted commands. So I'm, I fill the same role as a commanding officer, um, same basic responsibilities and authorities. Just done a little bit differently with some things, but... Um, so I run the station out there. We have 23 active duty and then another 15 reservists at the station. Um, we have four boats that we use to patrol the intercoastal waterway and the ocean offshore Wrightsville Beach down to Carolina Beach and up to around Surf, Surf City, Topsail Island area. So not a real big AOR, but it's one that is constantly changing whether it's storms or just the regular ocean currents and such our, our inlets and everything around the area are constantly changing so it really keeps us on our toes and you got a lot of action in that aor i mean you got three major inlets or you know cape fear river is not in your ar but you got two carolina yeah. beach and mason Burr inlet and you got a huge charter fishing chili- fleet and a ton of wreck boats you got i'm sure you guys stay you active port. yeah yeah. Yeah. So we, we don't have to deal with the port so much. Oh, okay. um, years ago, Wrightsville Beach used to help station Oak Island with some of the port operation stuff. Mm-hmm. But then about 10 years ago, they decided that that was too far out of out of range for the station and cut off that mission. But um, yeah, we stay pretty busy with the law enforcement, especially, you know, um, summertime, we have lots and lots of kids on boats that do not know what they're doing or choose to not do what they're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. So that keeps us pretty active. Um, search and rescue, we like most stations, the search and rescue has fallen off a lot over the last 15 years. Um, as commercial salvage and that kind of thing has increased. And here in Wrightsville Beach, we have both Sito and Tobo US. So we have lots of commercial salvers out there. A lot of our traditional search and rescue cases now get picked up by those commercial salvers. We still run about 40 or 50, what we kind of refer to as legitimate search and rescue cases. You know, those are the ones that um are are really really distressed and people really need our help and and it's that's when it pays off to have a 24 hour a day man station at some place like Wrightsville Beach where we can get out there on a moment's notice and pick somebody up um we actually just had a case uh about a week ago maybe less than that we had a uh overdue snorkeler who had been out spearfishing and his his wife called us saying he was supposed to be back you know an hour and a half two hours ago and he wasn't there and she was worried so the boat went out and fortunately it was just one of those cases where he had not checked in in that but it was getting dark and it was a time when he definitely should have been off the water and but was able to find him quick and scoop him up and bring him back so he was in good shape and was able to walk away from the station but just that's the kind of stuff that we're there for we're there when when people are having those bad days and family members can't find their other family members and, and we need to get them off the water fast so yeah very very good point so uh 
we had your XPO in yep. uh, several episodes back, and yep. he had a lot of uh, interesting uh, stories here, local or in, and stuff like that. So, but tell us about how long have you been in the Coast Guard? Where all have you been? So I just recently hit my twenty year mark, just a couple a couple weeks ago. So twenty years, um, and it's at times dragged on and at times <laughs> flown by. Um, <clears throat> after boot camp, I started off down in Key West, Florida, which as a 19 year old kid coming off a farm in the middle of Indiana, that was a shocking experience. <laughs> Key West is an amazing place and now I love it. But when I was stationed down there, it was a, it was a difficult transition for me to be sure. Yeah. Um, lots of alien migrant interdiction operations while I was down there, um, stopping lots of primarily Cuban migrants, um, picking them up and taking, taking them back to Cuba. So, um, that was a very difficult mission, both because it required lots and lots of hours, but also it's stuff like that is hard to see the humanitarian side of it, mm-hmm. um, to, to see the families getting split up, see parents that literally push their, their child onto a boat while they get left behind on the beach just because they want to get them to a better place. So that was a really hard tour for me, um, but I think it did a lot to set me up for the rest of my career with a lot of the skills and things that I learned. I went from there to... About as ex- extreme opposite as you could go, I went up to Saginaw Bay, Michigan, oh, wow. and spent the next four years doing search and rescue, including ice rescue, which was a well, crazy mission. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Something that I, I definitely don't want to do again, but I very much treasure those four years. Um, and I was up there during a really cool time when the Coast Guard was uh, building and developing our a, a more formal search and rescue training mission for ice rescues. Up until then, it kind of been a little haphazard, just a handful of guys teaching other guys what they had learned. And while I was there, we we stood up for the first time the formal Coast Guard Ice Capability Center of Excellence. And then I was the lead instructor for our first year of formal ice rescue training. So that was really cool. Um, I got an innovation award for the work that I did while I was there. And, and that was a really, really informative tour to kind of see some of the, the behind the scenes and inner workings of how policy is written and, and that kind of thing. So... Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. So, so any uh, any trips overseas or anywhere exotic in the Coast Guard? So, probably the most exotic. I would. Key West is probably the most exotic. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. I mean, outside but, of uh, Key West, yeah, it's like no, a country of its so own. So when I, I left Michigan and I I did the extreme move again, I went from Michigan all the way down to San Juan, Puerto Rico. Oh wow! And oh, I, okay. I got on another uh, 110 foot patrol boat down there and did two years down there. Um, again, doing a lot of the migrant interdictions and down there, a lot of it was seen less as interdictions and more as rescues the mm-hmm. the dominicans coming over from the dominican republic frequently on boats that were not at all seaworthy and, yeah, and yeah. tremendously overloaded so um a lot more research and mes- rescue than just an interdiction mission down there but um any pina coladas when you're in puerto rico uh, i'm more of a mojito guy myself okay, okay. but uh yeah there was definitely plenty of mojitos flowing down so, there so i was in old san juan probably <clears throat> 15 years ago and we went into this restaurant and we ordered dinner. You know, we we're just having a great time. And the owner comes over and he slides a pina colada on the table. <laughs> and we're like, we didn't order that. And he says, oh, pina colada comes complimentary at every meal. I am the inventor of the pina colada. <laughs> oh, really? You? He's like, yes, I invented it. And we were like, wow, how cool is that? And so doing a little research after that trip, there's quite the uh, whole uh, – argument here between the <laughs> Hilton sure. hotels that's claimed they invented the pina colada and this guy who was the bartender at Hilton hotels <laughs> oh, in Puerto okay. Rico. But 
gotta say, best one I've ever had in my life. That's awesome. So yeah, I'm a probably big... the last time I've had one too, <laughs> but it was good. Yeah, I'm a big mojito fan. A buddy of mine and I found a place while we were there that served pitchers of mojitos, and that was both dangerous and amazing. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Lots of pitchers down yeah, that way. Yeah. So you've had you've kind of bounced all around in the Coast Guard now. All of our former Coasties have all been where, Kelsey? They've all had a tour somewhere. They've all had, they've all either been to Alaska or Hawaii. Alaska or Hawaii. So any Alaska or Hawaii for you? No, those were, uh, those are the places where my wife always said if I went, I was going alone. So (laughs) (laughs) I I definitely had an interest in going to both of those, Alaska especially. But uh, we, I, I couldn't convince her. Yeah. You know? Um, see, I kind of see, see if you get to too. go to, to Alaska, you get to grow this nice Jeremiah Johnson beard, <laughs> and Hawaii is the Tom Selleck mustache. So, I mean, I think every man on their bucket list has got at least one or two of those yeah. places. Yeah, I always really wanted to go to some of those places. You know, I decided a long time ago that I didn't join the Coast Guard to, to stay at home. I wanted to go and see stuff. Um, being from northern Indiana originally, the, the Michigan tour was... You know, very early in my career, I, I thought I was going to do four years and get out, and that was why I looked to go into Michigan. But then after that, I decided that I was going to stay in, and I didn't want to be anywhere near home. I wanted to find, I wanted to find where my eventual home was going to be in the country. Yeah, you know, left Puerto Rico and went up to Charleston for four years, which was an amazing time and loved that town. Um, then came up north here, North Carolina, to Hoboken, which most people haven't even heard of. Good old Hoboken, but, uh, great station up there. Had a great, uh, very short tour there one year. Because then I picked up Chief and uh, was fortunate enough to get a critical fill job as the officer in charge of Station Rio Vista out in California, um, okay. and and Rio Vista was absolutely amazing. Yeah. You know, I, I think largely because it was my first command tour, but that's that was my favorite four years of the Coast Guard. Just a, a great little small town. I mean, when you walk down the main street of that town, it is small town America. It is the picture you have in your head of what the idyllic small town main street is. So just a wow. really cool spot. Just in case you're in- haven't ever been to Indiana. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so you grew up on a farm in Indiana, right? I did. Yeah. yeah. Tell us a little bit about farm life growing up. You know, it was, I look back on it now and I, oftentimes I wish my kids had it. You know, no. there were, there were definitely many times when I, I thought to myself growing up like, man, this is, this is awful. You know, my, <laughs> I had a cousin that would wake me up at five o'clock in the morning with a cattle prod to go bale hay. Yeah. <laughs> but um, looking back on it now, you know, I, I definitely think that my work ethic and my drive to always be working and to, to be finding new things to work on comes from that. Um, and I definitely learned a lot working alongside my grandpa and my uncle and um, the, the other hired hands on the farm. Because, you know, when I, I, grew up, I grew up doing just the little kid stuff, you know, the, the baling hay and all that kind of stuff, mucking stalls and, and that sort of thing. But then when I got into high school... I went and actually worked for my uncle who ran the, the major family farm. And I was, I was just another farmhand. I mean, he oh, didn't, yeah. he didn't give me any benefit of the doubt on anything. I think he fired me about six or seven times. <laughs> <laughs> always, always that night he'd go home and I'd go home and I think my aunt would butter him up a little bit. And the next day he'd call me and tell me to come back, but, um, learned tons from him and, and working with those other guys. And, um, I think also developed a lot of my leadership skills and my desire to be a leader during that time. You know, I saw him and what he did not only with the farm, but out in the community as well and how respected and revered he was in the community and how he led a lot of the community events and things like that. The Lions Club was a, a big part of our lives mm-hmm. back then. He was a lifelong lion and 
that's part of what motivated me to join the Lions Club, which I'm a member of now and have been for several years. So, um, you know, looking back, it was an amazing experience. I, I don't know that there's a, a better life to have growing up than to be on a farm for a lot of reasons. Um, and, you know, lately my wife and I have been talking about ways to start sending the kids back to stay with family back home so that they can yeah. at least get some of that during the summertime and that kind of sure. thing. Because it's just there's, an amazing there's life. There's nothing like the experience of growing up in a family business, you know. Yeah, uh, my family was fishermen. So by the time I had a driver's license, I had cleaned more fish and cut more bait than <laughs> most people do in a lifetime. Yeah. And I was probably 14 before they actually even started to pay me. I was just like <laughs> free labor. Go do this. Go do that. Go cut this squid. All right. Do 100 more pounds. And and uh, by the time I was a teenager, I, I had developed so much that I was out working grown men that when my dad would hire and my dad would always pit me up against these guys you can't work harder <laughs> than a 16 year old boy and and i think my favorite story of all time was uh pulling anchor with a cast on my arm with a broken arm <laughs> my dad was like you still got one good arm get out there boy <laughs> so but but life experience taking it into the real world and beyond there's nothing better than growing yeah. up in a family business like that yeah. so i wouldn't trade it for anything for the world so i yeah, get 100 percent what you're saying um, so now we're going to jump into our fun fact. Okay. In the spirit of humor, I thought I would read the official missions of the U.S. Coast Guard <clears throat> versus actual missions of the U.S. <laughs> Coast Guard. All right. Okay. Official missions of the U.S. Coast Guard, maritime law enforcement, port, waterway, and coastal security, drug interdiction, aids to navigation, search and rescue, living marine resources, marine safety, Defense readiness, migrant interdiction, marine environmental protection, and ice operations. Actual missions of the U.S. Coast Guard. Sailing over waves bigger than our boats. Done that. <laughs> Being confused for airline pilots. <laughs> Doing things the Navy takes credit for. Yeah. <laughs> chasing down fireworks people mistook for distress flares. Definitely done that. Gluing together 50-year-old boats and continuing to use them. <laughs> uh, developing an immunity to caffeine. Now, not in your case. <laughs> and saving people who tried to cross the ocean using Google Maps. <laughs> Disposing of illicit drugs worth more than the entire budget. Yeah. And fending off penguin attacks. <laughs> Never had to do that one. In your never ice operations, you never had to fend off a penguin. No, there's no, no penguins in Michigan. Not in Michigan, no. <laughs> not unless yeah. they get out of the zoo. Yeah. <laughs> you know, one of the one of the ones I find funniest about that is the one about holding together 50 year old boats with glue. Yeah. So I've never been on a 50 year old boat, but when I was on my my very first boat, the patrol boat out of Key West, 110 foot patrol boat, um, built. Those were built in the late 80s going into the early 90s, if I recall correctly. And so when I got on board in 2000, it was not a particularly old boat, but the boats were only designed to last for 10 to 15 years. And we yeah. stretched them out to 20 or 30 years. As we do. Yeah. <laughs> but so we, we took it. We were actually up in Charleston in dry dock. And it was our first day up on blocks. And I remember myself, I was a, a seaman non-ray at the time. My BM-1 and my captain, who was a lieutenant, were walking around underneath the boat, and we're just kind of inspecting the hull and the condition and everything. And there was an MK-2 and a fireman in the engine room down in the bilge, and they were just doing their early preps because they were going to be painting the bilge at some point. So we're, sta we're standing right underneath the boat, and the MK-2 and the fireman are inside, and the fireman finds this little spot of rust down the bilge. 
So the MK2 hands him a chipping hammer and says, just tap it on a little bit and let's see how bad it is. So we're standing there, down there and I heard, dink, dink, dink. <laughs> and the edge of this, this chipping hammer comes through the hall and it's like three inches from my head. Oh Holy cow. God. So not only did I almost get hit with a chipping hammer, but that was how degraded our hall was, that those couple little taps punched a hole in the hall. Yeah. And then as we carried on and they, they hydroblasted, so used water to strip the paint off the hall as opposed to sandblasting, as they hydroblasted the hall, we found several areas of the hall that literally the only thing keeping the water out was the layers and layers of paint. Yeah, but I you had some have, plate work oh, ahead of you on that. We deal. replaced, I, I want to say it was 60% of our hull plating during that dry dock. Yeah. Jeez. And that boat went on to serve for another 15 years, I believe. Just absolutely amazing. So now I'm seeing why they have a whole marine safety unit that inspects commercial <laughs> vessels. Now it's making yeah. sense. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Very cool, very cool. So, Kelsey... Yeah, Go so, ahead and set him up here. Let's yeah. see what you got. <laughs> All right, senior. Uh, without breaking uh, confidential or classified information, do you have a funny story in your time in the Coast Guard you want to tell us about? So, maybe, maybe in addition to the, 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 the chip almost... The chip <laughs> heard chip around chip, the world chip there, Chip hammer right? almost hitting your head. You know, the funny stories I think are actually kind of hard because so many of them are, are contextual, you know, and it's, yeah. sure. it's, it's almost, they're almost inside jokes. Um, because you had to have been there to see it. But um, I think the, the funniest stories I have are just the personalities of some of my shipmates that I've served with over the years. Um, doing Ice Rescue was a lot of fun, and I had a, a lot of really good friends I made during that time. One of the guys that became a really good friend of mine was named Dimitri Tagaropoulos. So his full name was Dimitrios Anastasios Tagaropoulos. Wow. And it was one of my favorite things to say his whole name and to embellish it, obviously. And obviously <laughs> Greek. Um but so tall, you know, the olive skin, dark hair, like your your perfect Greek guy, real good looking guy, strong and muscular and all that, and all about his looks. <laughs> and I don't want to go so far as say he was vain, but I mean, he, he always wanted to look good. And we would go out to do ice rescue training or anything else, and he always had to do his hair and everything else <laughs> before he'd go out there. And he always said, Jason, if you look good, you rescue good. <laughs> <laughs> and he would... I've got so many pictures of him posing on the ice, wearing a dry suit and all his gear, and he'd take his helmet off, and he's got his hair all perfectly oh my coiffed however he wanted it, you know, and if you look good, you rescue good. Oh, I've, I I've always it. hung with that, and, you know, his uh, his wife, he so he ended up marrying another Coastie who's a, a chief bosun mate, and she's actually also in charge of uh, the ace navigation team out in Humboldt Bay, California, so she's still in, and he just became a, a cop out there. And when his wife posted the, the pictures online of him officially becoming a cop, I put something on that. I was like, well, if you look good, you're going to L.E. good. Yeah. yeah. I love it. I love it. That That's sounds good. like something that goes on a sticky note on your mirror. Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah. like as you're getting ready in the morning. Yeah. Just pump you up. Well, you know, it's it's kind of a good... I, I, I like the saying not only because it came, from, it came from Tag, my buddy, and it just kind of fit his personality, but it's one of those things too that when you're in the military and especially in the coast guard with as highly visible as we are in at the stations, especially it's important to look good. You know, yeah. you don't want to go out there looking slovenly and, and disheveled and that kind of thing. People don't take you seriously when you look like that. So while I, I use it for fun, it also is a kind of a good saying, you know? Oh, so. it's a good, I mean, it's a good charge to wear the, wear the uniform right and proper hundred yeah. percent. I do that. public, I, I'm the public affairs officer right. for the division. So I think we're going to have to kind of modify that saying a little bit 
Yeah. You know, if you look good, <laughs> you, look you do good, PA good. Yeah, if you look good, yeah, <laughs> do PA good. I like it, and in my mind, I'm picturing like uh, Joey from Friends, you know, <laughs> oh, in a yeah. Coast Guard uniform. <laughs> Which it's not too far off, which, <laughs> which is so funny because the other day it's like randomly playing and I'm walking through the house and I think somebody's watching it, you know, and uh, it's an episode where he's out sailing with Rachel and he's like, what are those guys doing over there? Who names their boat Coast Guard? And she's like, it's <laughs> oh, the yeah. Coast Guard. And he's like, well, the coast is way over there. <laughs> awesome. that, is, that is a good episode. Yeah, it was pretty funny. So what you got for us in the history corner, Kelsey? I'm excited. Um, so I'm going to give you three words or phrases. Phrases. All right. Well, I mean, just some Do of the multiple words. Do I need to write world. these down? No. Okay. Right. There's Movie. no test. Are right, you ready? ready. Movie. Search and rescue aircraft, obviously on topic for this podcast. So what's your guess? Okay. What's your guess? My, I have to guess out of those three. Is it movie, search and rescue aircraft? Are we guessing like what historical event that relates to? I mean, not necessarily historical event. It could be like movie or whatever. I'm going to go movie. movie. It is a movie. It is a movie. So I'm going to go movie for a hundred, Alex. Oh, no, no. It, I'm thinking the perfect storm. Oh okay, I have to guess the, the movie. Storm. Yes. Oh, I'm gonna guess the Guardian. Okay, the Guardian. See, this is what I was expecting okay, from all there. Right. You know all I'm a bosomate, right? Okay. What? You know I'm a bosomate, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know the Guardian's about. <laughs> yeah. Okay, just making sure. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, well, um, no, <laughs> no, and no. <laughs> okay. uh, believe it or not, it's the movie uh, Coast Guard. What a title! Um, it was uh, released in 1939. It was one of the first Hollywood depictions of the Coast Guard, actually. Wow, never yeah. heard of it. I have heard of it. I've never seen it. Yep. So uh, the plot was pretty simple and in tune with you know other 1939 uh, movies. Uh, two coasty pilots, best friends, one girl. You know, that's about it. Uh, but the film showcased the uh, state of the art equipment used by the Coast Guard in search and rescue <laughs> missions at the time. Uh, so notably, the aircraft used at the time, uh, since you know they were pilots, that's what they were focusing on. Uh, and I looked everywhere for pictures to confirm the model, uh, but that yielded nothing. I, I I can't even find the movie online right now. I feel like that's something that well, I they could didn't find. have the internet in 1939. <laughs> no, I mean that could be part of it. Could be part of it. Um, but I haven't I haven't been able to find it yet. I will. I will one okay. day. I'll find it. Um, but the Dolphin aircraft, I, you know, it's going to be either an RD-1 or an RD-4, and I'll, I can get in later on why I think that, would have been depicted in the film. And the Dolphin originated in 1930 as the Sinbad, uh, a pure flying boat with wheels is what wow. it was. And okay. the Sinbad was intended as a, lu- a luxurious flying yacht. What a time to be alive. Um, what a time to be alive. Is that like the boater home commercial that they have out now? <laughs> Maybe. Because I want one of those. Yeah. yeah. And then and then now you see Carolina Beach and like homes literally floating on water. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, this is where we are now. Yeah. Um, but the improved aircraft was uh, named the Dolphin. They made modifications and stuff to it. Uh, however, this did not represent the end of development as many detail improvements were made. Uh, the Great Depression had curtailed demand for such extravagance as a flying yacht, but Douglas managed to interest the United States Coast Guard, who not only bought the Sinbad, but 12 dolphins. Uh, the Navy used the dolphin for transports, including one for President Roosevelt, who never used it, <laughs> but it was the first aircraft procured to transport the President of the United States. Wow. 
So, yeah. Uh, in 1933, landing in heavy seas, uh, U.S. Coast Guard RD-4 undertook some rescues of merchant sailors at sea, uh, feats that made spectacular news reports and thralling the American public. You know, you think back to, like, the 30s and, like, you know right before World War II where, you know, all this stuff came on at the movies. Like, you had to watch the news in the movies. Yeah. Um, you just think of something like that. And uh, I've pulled up to just in some of this research old. Uh, we were showing Joe a clip of it uh, before, before recording um, of just these old, you know, you do a videos. really good voice, do a oh, voice. Yeah. Now it's here, the Coast Guard is out here. <laughs> that's exactly it. Yeah, that's exactly and, yeah. it. So, you know, it's uh we're going to have to we're going to have to talk about Which that a little bit more. We laughed and we said that guy had to narrate every, every yeah. Inf- yeah. info video of that era. Right. I've always wondered if he was really talking as fast as what it sounded on those clips or if they actually sped, sped up what up. he was saying. I think say. they probably did. That makes sense. You know, sense. If, if film being as expensive as it was, it wouldn't surprise me if they sped it up yeah. just enough for Okay, we were getting way off topic. <laughs> um, uh, so an article at the time referred to the aircraft as winged hospitals, which wow. I thought was kind of funny too. Uh, so operating very differently from aircraft now, the dolphin would land on the water, launch a rubber boat over the vessel in distress, retrieve victims, and then take off. Oh. So this was amphibious. Yep. And, um, you know, just uh, again, which is why there is a flying yacht, basically, you know, hey, you land, yeah. land, be on the water and then take off and go home, I guess. Um, but uh, one of the, part of the plot in that in that movie is, um, uh, you know, the one of the guys is trying to get the girl's attention. And he's he's doing stunts over her house and ends up messing up the, the plane oh. and he gets court martialed and like this whole thing. There so uh, so that's why <laughs> I was like, I didn't know if it was an RD4 because I will show you a picture of it. <clears throat> or an RD one because an RD one to me like seems like it would have a little bit more capabilities of doing some and some it, tricks. That RD four is just literally a it's, it's huge. It's like yeah, I think the RD four is the one that I'm picturing. Yeah, it might be. It's got the two. Yeah, uh, see, I'm picturing the, the spruce here. Bruce, you know, in my head, <laughs> this ginormous spruce. Wood I don't think it was that big. But it wasn't this that is big. this is the RD four. Oh, okay, yeah. is that what you're picturing? Yep, that's yep. that's what yeah. I'm thinking of. Yeah. So that that's the RD four, and then the RD one is just it's it's much smaller and cured. You know the RD ones. Okay. That that's you know I I'm I'm picturing okay. that's probably what they were flying in the movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, it looks a little bit worse. Well, you know, too. Hollywood movies are known for their authenticity. Yes, so that's what I'm I was sure thinking. they got the aircraft right. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, considering that it was in the time and that they were showcasing, you know the the what the Coast Guard had at the time. That's what I was yeah. thinking. Okay, don't be smart with me. <laughs> you know, I've always found the the older amphibious aircraft like that very interesting. And, you know, we had that capability up through the Pelican helicopters. Yes. Um, which, yes. Were, which were before the, the H-65 Dolphins that we have mm-hmm. now. Yeah. And I've actually talked to a few of the, the old timers that were still flying around on those when we had them. And there was a doctor that I knew years ago when I was still doing my EMT stuff who was a, a prior Coast Guard doctor. And he told me about a rescue he did from a pelican up in Alaska where they had landed the thing on the water. And they essentially pulled almost right up to this girl who had drowned. Um, and they pulled her on board. And he was a, his area of research and study at that time was cold water near drowning, where people come back after significant periods dead, essentially, in cold water. Um, but they just landed on the water right next to her. They pulled her on board. And... They were able to revive her after like an hour or something, essentially wow. dead. And wow. she went on to become an Olympic swimmer. 
What? Yeah. That is insane. Yeah. Well, that's the history corner right there. Yeah, for but real. Just a, but just cool to think about those aircraft actually going out there and landing and just picking people up. Yeah. You know, but it was when we got rid of that capability that then we brought the the rescue swimmer program and the ESTs right. involved into what it is now. Right. And it's uh, we gosh, should have waited to show you the picture because you got so you you just stole all my thunder. Man, I was on a roll. It's okay. Oh, but I was just going to point out, you know, um, you know, they were marketed as luxury yachts, so there's plenty of room on board, mm-hmm. um, and that's why you know they're flying hospital or whatever. Um, but I, my comment was going to be, you know, uh, would, would senior chief Randall be alive if they could have landed on the water and rode out <laughs> the storm? We'll never know. We'll never know. Is that, is <laughs> that I'm assuming the, that was the guy from the guardian. guardian? Oh, guardian. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Cause I knew Joe was going to guess the guardian yeah. and I was like, yeah, because we saw it in. in Baltimore last year yeah, at, they, the, they at the D train event. So my, funny story about the guardian then we'll get back on task here i'm like it's i don't know the movie's what 10 years old maybe older i don't know something like that probably okay so the movie just come out i didn't know anything about it and um i'm i'm like at marshall's or somewhere with my wife shopping and i've got a station Wrightsville beach t-shirt on and there's this young kid checking us out and he just looks at me and he goes so others may live sir and i was like (laughs) i'm like what huh what he's like I see your shirt. It's the Coast Guard motto. So others may live. And I was like, no, that's not it. <laughs> He's like, yeah, with Kevin Costner. And I was like, what are you talking about? And so I later put together that he was talking about that movie. Yeah. And I was like, and then I had to watch the movie to see what the kid was talking about. And I was like, oh, okay. I watched it once just to say that I, I saw it in that is yeah, <laughs> Ashton, never a fan. Ashton Kutcher looks like his character looks like somebody that would um that would say look good rescue good. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. You know one of the things that drove me and a lot of people nuts about that movie was towards the very end. Even though they had so much Coast Guard participation in that movie, towards the very end when he like walks into the girlfriend's classroom or something like that, I can't remember what, exactly how it goes, but he like goes to see the the girlfriend. His uniform that he's wearing is totally jacked. Yeah. Like, it's not anything remotely what it was supposed to be. So yeah. we ridiculous. talked about maybe doing an extended episode of watching this with live commentary. You are invited. The Guardian? Yes. Oh. yes. <laughs> because we, you know, when I the first time I ever saw it was when they played it at D-Train. They had, like, a movie night or whatever. Yeah. And I was just, honestly, I was sitting there and I was like, this isn't. I'm pretty sure this isn't real. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, I know that, you know, we don't, we, we get this, we don't interact every single day, you know, yeah. with, with active duty, but no. <laughs> yeah. There was a lot of stuff that you, you pick up on. This there were times I was very, laughing and I probably shouldn't have been very, laughing. Very, very you know, Hollywood. There, there was, there was definitely some good stuff in it. Like when he's in training, they used actual ASTs to mm-hmm. do that training, you know? Yeah. So there was definitely some legitimacy there, but yeah, I, I didn't care. Well, <laughs> I mean, all in all, though, right to get to inspire the youth to want to oh, get yeah. involved in the Coast Guard and get our message out there. I think it did a good job. Absolutely. I mean, That's think of how many true. military movies have been made that are just not accurate at all, uh, just to trump up them. some of that recruitment <laughs> yeah. effort. Yeah. So all you know, you, we got to get a free pass. Yeah, I will say though, if and I don't want to, I don't want to get too far off topic on Coast Guard movies, but the Finest Hour, mm-hmm. that movie was fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah, I love that, that movie. I mean. 
they obviously had to throw in the the love scenario that was pretty out there and not realistic but they just sell it, it because was, the coast guard apparently isn't sexy enough yeah yeah <laughs> but that was such a great movie when that movie came out it was while i was in commanda in rio vista and i took the whole crew to go see it in the theater and we had morale pay for it and everything and it was super cool we all went in there in uniform and watched it It was a lot of fun so so we had a big uh recruiting event at the local theater when that came out oh really around here it was huge big district push and Very we cool. were there Goldside recruiters were there, and we picked up a lot of auxiliaries really? that came out of that. That you know that had come in. Phil was one. He told his story, but we had a lot of interaction with that. And the, it was funny because I worked Nick and I, who did our last episode. Nick and I worked the booth like three days in a row, and yeah. we had the evening shift, which was the most people coming in. And it was so funny. People would come in and they'd look at us again, like you know, what time does this train leave? And because <laughs> we were in trops, and then they're coming out, they're like, oh, "Thank you so much." Was, <laughs> were you there that day? <laughs> and, I, and I was like, uh, "No, ma'am, that was like seventy years ago yeah. or whatever." Uh, it was. Phil, Phil, when? What time did they? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, not Phil only was that then, but you know, yeah. not only was that one of the greatest small boat rescues of all time, and it's it's a story that I had known before the movie came out. Yeah. But I think as a bosun mate, Bernie Weber is just like a hero to anyone, to any bosun mate that knows Coast Guard history. Mm-hmm. You look at Bernie Weber and what he did that night, and it's just, it's awe inspiring. That's, yeah. there's no other words for it. You know, to do what he did and save the people he saved in the way that he did and the conditions he did mm-hmm. is just absolutely to this day unbelievable. Yeah. It's a fantastic story. For sure. 100%. Yeah, so uh, just I had I fit, pulled a few specs on it just because of the size of the thing. It's just massive. Like I showed you a picture, and we'll we'll post it on the website too. But uh, so it, the the crew it took uh, two a pilot and co-pilot, which is standard. But the capacity was six passengers. So you think of like I mean that was that's a lot more than I mean how many crew goes on a dolphin right now? On the I, I feel like it's, it's like pilot got crew. Well, the the dolphins, are, you know, those are the smaller helicopters, the sixty the sixty fives. They've got a, a pilot and co pilot, and then there's always a flight mechanic, and then not always a rescue swimmer, but so typically three or four. Yeah. 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 Um, and the crew size on the sixties is the same, but then they have a bigger carrying capacity. Right. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. Uh, yep. So and then the length was forty five foot three inches. <clears throat> the wingspan sixty foot. Yeah. The height was 15 foot 2 inches. Um, the square footage of the wing area is 637 square feet. That's hmm. bigger than an apartment here in Wilmington. Yeah, that's a big, that's a big wing area. <laughs> <laughs> that's like a penthouse in Manhattan, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, gr- uh, it's empty weight was 6,700 pounds. Gross weight, 90, almost 9,800 pounds. And I uh, had fuel capacity of 240 gallons. So that yeah. held quite a bit. Um, but I, and you, you mentioned the, the dolphins earlier as well. Uh, so I was going to say that, you know, we're familiar with it and then the, uh, it replaced. Now you said you called it a Pelican. I, I had on here that it was a, it was an HH five, two guard. That or, sounds about right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So and, and that the Pelican was might have been a nickname. Yeah. 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 It, so, um, but when it replaced it, the, the Seaguar was also amphibious, yep. like you noted. Uh, so, um, but the the 65 is not and like you said you know that opened the opportunity or opportunity but the need for rescue swimmers because they weren't amphibious so but i thought that was interesting uh and it it would be cool to kind of uh maybe get with like an aircraft guru maybe to explain the reasons or the, the turn away from amphibious aircraft one day and we're seeing the same trend here 
as we evolve in these episodes and the evolution of the Coast Guard for the mission, you know, decade by decade, sometimes year by year. You know, uh, we were talking a few episodes back about the changes since the National Safe Boating Act and since 9-11. And you look at it, it goes back further than that. It's a constantly evolving force to what the nation's needs are. Um, Who would have ever thought when Hamilton said we need revenue cutters that the mission would be doing what it's doing today? Yeah. And that's pretty impressive. Um, because I'm not familiar in the history of other events, but I think that, you know, uh, grunts have always been grunts, (laughs) right? (laughs) Yeah. Infantry's always been infantry, but you look at the Coast Guard, the mission and how it changes and the responsibility that's put on them time and time again. And I, I can't help but tie this in to the auxiliary and our jobs to augment you guys and what you need everything from food services to assisting with rns inspections to educating the public throughout the whole rbs platform um that's a very important job and uh you know recently we had an amazing gentleman that retired that exemplified that job and augmenting and that was an amazing uh ceremony to be a part of with you and uh we talked about that a little bit in our last episode so yeah um my big charge to auxiliarists, and, and it's, it's always been this way, and I'm kind of changing it during COVID, is respond to what they need, not what we want to do. Yeah, That's great you came in, you got cox and qualified, but guess what? If the small boat station you're assisting needs food services, then hey, let's throw down the PFD, let's grab an apron and a spatula, and let's, let's get qualified and let's help them where they need it. And so... Um, Communicate with us uh, what your needs may be at station right now so that some of our auxiliary viewers can, can find out where they can help. I know we're, we're under COVID restrictions, but coming, coming out of this, there's no better time right now for us to get qualified. Sure. Well, we're on. I, uh, I actually bumped into you, I think, your first week down at station mm-hmm. and introduced, introduced myself. And you're like, hey, can I help you? Because we were, we were just stopping yeah. by to say hi to everybody. And uh, yeah, I was like, you know, what, what do you guys need? You know, what, anything you need, you just let us know. I was like, we, we, we've got people that like, they'll come out here and mow grass. Like, we've, just, <laughs> we've got people. Yeah, it's one of the great things about, you know, a lot of the auxiliaries we work with is that. It doesn't matter what you need. Like we want to do whatever we can to fulfill it. So yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, my message to the auxiliary, and I've been fortunate, and I say this, I think every time I, I talk to any auxiliary group, I I had very positive early impacts with the auxiliary. Um, previous National Commodore Mark Simone was was one of my auxiliaries at Station Saginaw Bay up in Michigan mm-hmm. when when I first started meeting auxiliaries, and so um, he really set the tone for me for auxiliary and. And from that, I've developed a very, uh, a very significant fondness for the auxiliary. But what I always say is that whatever you think you can do, I bet we can find a place for it. Yeah. I mean, I've had auxiliaries that have done just any number of jobs. I had one when I was at Station Hoboken who he had retired from GM after years and years of work there, um, was set for the rest of his life. But he came out a couple times a week, and he maintained all of our small engines. So everything from our dewatering pumps to our lawnmowers. And Station Hoboken, if you don't know, has a pretty big footprint. So we had like six lawnmowers. Yeah. Oh and he was, he was the guy that came in and did all that maintenance. And that freed up our engineers then, the MKs, to do more of the training and the law enforcement and that kind of stuff instead of having to tinker with this old lawnmower that doesn't want to start. 
Yeah. Um, when I was in Rio Vista, we had one who was a locksmith in his civilian life. And we had family housing units on board the station. So every time a family moved out, we had to change the locks. We just called him. We had to pay for the actual lock sets, you know, but he just did all the work as an auxiliarist. So there's really, there's no limit, I don't think, to, to how much the auxiliary can do. Um, you asked me what, what we need right now. It's it's hard. I mean, we we always need watchstanders. You know, mm. I, I don't think we could ever have too many auxiliary watchstanders. And you know, you brought up the ceremony for Tom Fisk. You know, losing him after twenty years of watchstanding is is a a big deal. And you know, so I mean, if nothing else, someone to replace that block of time would be yeah. huge. Um, but we always have more time slots we could fill for watchstanders. Um, we could always use aux chefs. Um, you know, I have, I'm kind of lucky right now. I've got three cooks right now cause I'm waiting for one to transfer. Um, we will go back down to two here eventually, but so we're, we're pretty flush with cooks right now, but once she leaves, you know, w- we have two cooks and they, they try to, they do a strange and hard to understand schedule. I don't even know when they're there half the time, but to keep the meals coming, you know, they have to alternate how they're working and do some odd hours. And when one of them goes on leave, that puts a huge burden on the other one. So if we had aux chefs that could come in and help out with that stuff or come in on the weekends when we have reservists in and that kind of thing, that would be a huge benefit as well. Um, We already have the guys that do the the rescue and survival equipment inspections on Fridays, but we could always use more people doing that. You know, they've taken a little bit of hit with their help because of COVID stuff. So Mm -hmm. um, we could always use more help on that regard. And, you know, the, the thing I always try to stress is, if you're looking for a way to get involved and maybe you don't know what that way is going to be, let's talk about it. You know, get with your flotilla commander. Flotilla commander is going to get with me and we can have a conversation. What are your skills? What are your life experiences? The neat thing about the auxiliary is that once you're part of the auxiliary, you're a coastie. In my opinion, it's, it's cut, that cut and dry. So you're on base now. Your foot's in the door. You're part of the crew. What can you do to help the crew? You know, what do we have going on around the base that we could use help with? You know, we have a, an engine hoist out in our boathouse. The engine hoist has to get weight tested every year. Do you have experience with weight handling equipment? Mm-hmm. You know, there's little cards we have to follow to do everything right. And, you know, maybe you have to get some kind of certification to do it. But maybe you come out and you do my weight handling inspections every year. Mm-hmm. There is no end to the things that we could find for someone to do. You know, we are very blessed at Station Wrightsville Beach that we have a lawn contract, so we don't have to mow our own yard. Oh, that's good. Otherwise, <laughs> I would say that would be a huge help. Um, but even like with the landscaping, you know, the, our our landscape folks that, that do the grass and everything, they do a little bit of the landscaping, but um, it's mainly just maintenance stuff. So maybe you have an auxiliarist that really loves doing landscaping or landscape design. We could always use some upgrades. You know, mm-hmm. we could always have use somebody to class things up a little bit. You guys know Wrightsville Beach. I think the only reason we have a long contract is because if we didn't, our neighbors would be upset with how terrible <laughs> <Yes>. our grass would look. So I, I think we can always use some of that beautification. You know, painting projects, there's just, there's no end. Yeah. You know, actually the, the bathroom in my office needs new tile work done. <laughs> you know, so if, if you have somebody that does tile, send them my way. We, okay. We can employ somebody for that. So, um, you know, the, the biggest thing I want to stress is I've always said that we could not do our jobs the way we do without the auxiliary. That is a hard fact in my mind. Now, could we do our jobs? Yes, we could, but we couldn't do it the way we do it. And that's what I want to stress. Um, The auxiliary takes 
so many things off our plate. They're, they allow us to focus on things that we need to focus on so much that without the auxiliary, and we've felt this with COVID, without the auxiliary, we have to do so many additional things that we wouldn't normally have to do. So yeah. the, the biggest thing I would say to all your auxiliaries that are going to listen to this is if you are comfortable with the current health situation to be around the people in the office and the station, then just be around. Come in, find some things you can do, and just help out. If you're not comfortable yet, I totally understand that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but if you're comfortable enough, come in and just see where you can help out. Good point. Real good point. And I, when I was there the other day, I got to play with your new camera over there. Yeah. That's pretty cool. That is very cool. That was impressive. Big thanks to Flotilla 10-1 for that, and yeah. Bob LaCursey especially, who was yeah. the, the driving force behind that. Yeah, it's a really it's a really great camera up there on top of our antenna, and we can see we can see everything with that thing. Yeah. It's great. Yeah, Bob would not take no for an answer on that. So <laughs> He was a bulldog with that. For sure, Bob did an amazing job, so shout out to Bob LaCursey. Um, so... You know, we have boating public listeners here on the podcast as well. What's a pearl? What's a big thing you want to get out to the public about boating safety? What's your what's your pet so peeve? first and foremost? It you know it, it sounds like a broken record, but life jackets. Mm-hmm. You know the the importance of life jackets can never be understated. Um, <clears throat> and I got made fun of a lot for a, a news interview I did many many years ago when I said a life jacket's kind of like a seatbelt. You never know when it's going to save your life, but it's true. You don't know when your boat's going to hit a submerged log or a sandbar or something else you don't see, and you're going to go flying out of that boat and you're going to be in the water. You don't know when that boat might catch on fire or anything else and sink beneath you. Um, the thing about boating is that a day can turn bad really, really fast, and you don't have any control over that. So the importance of life jackets, and especially life jackets on kids, cannot be understated. Uh, and one of my biggest pet peeves on life jackets on kids, I've seen it so many times. Parents, for some reason, think that infants on a boat don't need a life jacket. They think that, oh, I can just hold them in my arms. Or I've even seen where they they market these little swings that hang from T-tops. Oh, yeah. yeah. And they put their infant in there without a life jacket. And I, I stopped a young couple one day, and I might have gone a little overboard with them. But it, it really made me nervous. They had two infants on board. One was in a little sling on the mom, and the other was in this little swing. I said, what happens if you hit something and you go flying out of the boat? Where are those kids going? Yeah. So, little tangent there, but definitely life jackets is a big, big deal. Well, it's really not a place for infants. Yeah. I mean, on the water. Let's just call that a spade a spade yeah, there. It's, it's you not, gotta, but you, you got to protect you them with life jackets. You got to be sensible about it. Yeah. yeah. Now, um, I, I, we also have a really large uh, paddling community yeah. out here because of the intercoastal. Um, yeah. And one of the things that I see a lot is a, an absence of life jackets. Yeah. So um, just from that perspective, what I mean, what would you share with anybody that's, you know, an avid paddler that so might be out there, too? I think the biggest thing with the paddlers is find something that's going to be comfortable for you. And, and I know you see this a lot, even just with the life jacket manufacturers. Pick something that's going to be comfortable, because if it's not comfortable, you're not going to want to wear it. And if you don't want to wear it, then you're not going to wear it. Um, so I think one of the great things with the paddlers is they have the little belt packs mm-hmm. that just they sit either in the front or the back, and if you need it, you inflate it and you pull it over your head. I think those are awesome. 
Um, also, any of the, the kind of low-profile inflatable life jackets are great. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife started taking up sailing a couple years ago, and so I bought her one of those to wear on the sailboat because she doesn't like the big bulky one. She kind of gets claustrophobic. Um, so I think any of those low-profile inflatable ones are great. Two things on that. Number one, make sure you do the maintenance on them. And you know, people get anxious about the, the little chemical pills and the automatic ones sometimes and that kind of thing. Um, I'm a big fan of manual ones, which I'll, I'll talk a little bit more in a second. But just make sure every, every few months, blow the thing up. Make sure it still holds air and doesn't have any holes in it, that kind of thing. But yep. um, inflatables are awesome. I, that's what I use on my boat. That's what my wife has. My kids still wear regular ones because they're kids still. But that's, that's what I use exclusively. Um, and I've, and for the paddlers, a lot of things I hear is that they're, they're nervous about the inflatables because the automatic ones, they're going to get wet being on the board. So they don't want to wear an automatic one, but then they're worried about having a manual one and not having the flotation when they need it. Like they're worried about being knocked unconscious or something like that. Now I can't say this is point of fact because I, the, the evidence on this is hard to find, but I have done a lot of digging, a lot of research, both within the Coast Guard through our mishap system, as well as through civilian boating mishaps. The occurrences of unconsciousness when you are removed from your vessel by whatever means are slim to none. Really? Even in the Coast Guard, when you talk about our mishaps and people getting ejected from boats doing tactical boat operations and stuff like that, really the only time people are being knocked unconscious when they're ejected from a boat is an extreme case where the boat then runs them over and they likely die anyways. Um, but the occurrences of just like falling out of the boat and knocking your head and being knocked unconscious, very, very hard to find that that happens. Something more seen in the movies, maybe. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And and more just kind of a, it's a mental thing. Like we worry about, oh, we're going to get thrown out, we're going to hit the head, and we're not going to be able to pull that little cord on the life jacket. Yeah. But the reality is that that's not what happens. Well, that's a really good uh, point of using some of that data. I mean, you get, and that's the other thing is how... Uh, in depth, all those reports go and every mishap yeah. and stuff. So, you know, that, that type of data and information is, you know, very critical, I, I guess, you know, when talking to the boater, boating public and saying, you know, yeah, I understand that's a concern. Your, your chances, like with anything, it could, it could happen. Yeah. Um, but you're, you know, what we see on yeah. a daily basis, you know, that's usually not a case. So that's, that's great yeah. information. I tell you, interaction I had one time doing vessel exams on paddlecraft is, you know, you see this on certain kayaks and paddle boards where there's like a bungee system mm-hmm. up on the bow and they can just <clears> stick their life jacket in there. Well, I was doing one and they had zip tied their life jacket. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> and I was like, how are you going to get that off? Well, I'll just get my Leatherman out and cut it loose if I need it, but I'm just worried about losing it in the water or it floating away or something like that. So you're not worried about actually needing to put it on, Jeez. you know? And uh, had the whole conversation, and it was like I was speaking foreign language there. So That's the thing. So many people just don't think through what could happen. You know, and that's one of the things I try to stress to people when they're going out there is just think about what might happen. And I'm not saying be the worry war. I'm not saying to to imagine the absolute worst case scenario. You know, even when we do our risk management at the station when the boats are going out, I tell you guys, if, if you want to talk about the worst risk possible, the worst risk is that the boat blows up and everyone dies. <laughs> that's not reasonable, though. That's not going to happen on a day-to-day yeah. basis. But think about what could happen. On a paddleboard or something like that, you get waked out, you get knocked in the water, and your board floats away from you. What can you do? 
Are you yeah. going to have some uh, a life jacket near enough that you're going to be able to float? Are you wearing a wetsuit maybe that is going to make you float? What's going to happen in those likely scenarios? Yeah. Maximum planning allows maximum flexibility. That's a good point. Very good. And that's, it sounded like you pulled that from somewhere. I did. I, okay. heard, that, I heard that quite <laughs> recently. And I also saw Matt's face, and he was like, wait a second. I love the sound guy just playing that. That's awesome. Yeah, he that's did. Stuff. That's his. Um, yeah, I mean, we always talk about planning, you know, follow, follow, yeah. uh, float plan, float plan. <laughs> yeah, one of those uh, things. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, and just, you know, be, be prepared. And it's, it's checking your gear and making sure that, you know, nothing flew out on the way home the last time you brought the boat home and you got all the life jackets. And, and, stuff. and, and for our long-term listeners here, we're hearing the same story. We're hearing life jackets, float plan, fire safety. And there's a reason out of, you know, over 10 guests that have come into the podcast that we're hearing the same theme because these are what we see and these are the things that are important. So Even though we talk about it all the yeah. time, there's still an it's issue. Still, it's still, you it's drive still it done. Fire safety is a great point too, and, and fire safety combined with planning. I had, a, I almost had a fire on my personal boat once, and it was my wiring for my trolling motor shorted out. And as soon as I realized that it wasn't like an overt fire that I could just point a fire extinguisher at, I called the station before I did anything. I said, "This is where I am. If I don't call you back in five minutes, send a boat." Yeah, and I I had to I had to pull my batteries out, and I just had to start cutting cables to cut power off, and fortunately was able to to stop it. But have a plan, think through what you're going to do when that kind of stuff happens. Yeah, Speaking time and time of- again, I'll do a vessel safety check, and the life jackets, and the fire extinguisher, and the anchor rope, and all these things that you potentially going to need are down in the bottom valley yeah. in some little cabinet where nobody knows where it is, and I'm like, that fire extinguisher needs to be between the operator and the greatest source of fire. Yeah. So mount it on the boat. Don't leave it in the box thrown down in there. Because <laughs> uh, years ago, up in uh, Lake uh, Lake Wiley, South Carolina, my father-in-law, he had an outdoor de- uh, dock with a grill on it, and he had his boat there beside it, and he caught the grill on fire. Yeah. And the grill's just sitting there, just flaming, and, I'm, and I come running down the dock, and I'm like, where's your fire extinguisher? He's like, I don't have one. So I go to the boat. <laughs> I'm digging around his boat, throwing things around. I grab one. And what happens to a plastic nozzle fire extinguisher? It breaks, breaks off in off. your hand. So I smack it against the side of the dock, and it just starts shooting <laughs> out of the top. <laughs> and I'm over there, and I put the whole thing out. And I was That's like, great. go get a new grill and get about four new fire extinguishers. <laughs> Speaking of uh, fires on boats, so this was this this was before you got down here at station. Uh, we do the uh, the Rysel Beach Holiday Flotilla. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, it's a lot of boats, small area, trying to make sure that people aren't anchoring in the channel, et cetera. And so we always try to have as many crew on board as possible because we're constantly talking uh, and trying to, you know, maintain that communication with our coxswain. So um, I was standing aft and uh, out of the corner of my eye, I see flames. And I immediately called to our coxswain and I said, I said, fire port side. And we all look and there's a boat going by and they had gotten one of those portable uh, gas like fire pits that you put on like your back porch. <laughs> oh, my had goodness. it on the boat, on the top <laughs> deck of the boat. And we were, we just like looked and we we're like, <clears throat> what? Okay, well, it's not on fire, but. That is very stupid, and we don't have time <laughs> to deal with this right now. So we hope this doesn't become an incident, late, oh incident later. It was the most bizarre thing. I was like, you, you're driving a boat with an open... Okay. okay. Yeah, it's wild. 
<laughs> That's like going down the highway with a grill going in the back of your vehicle or yeah. in your like, truck bed or something. Which I've seen one time. I've seen that back too. from Virginia. Yeah. Uh, I've seen it right here in town one day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, the, other, the other big safety thing that I always like to mention is electronics and be that radio or EPIRB. Um, yeah. Can't be understated. You know, nowadays everyone has a cell phone. Everybody thinks that cell phone's fine. But you get a few miles offshore, you're losing coverage. And that radio or that EPIRB is going to be the thing to notify us and that's going to save your life if you have emergency offshore. 100%. You know, our, our radio systems are set up to where we can triangulate the signal from a radio. So even if you can't tell us exactly where you are, if we can pick up your transmission, our multiple radio towers can triangulate where you are and we can get pretty darn close. And you can't do that with a cell phone. Correct. And, Absolutely right. And get some training on proper radio etiquette, you know? <laughs> <clears throat> Don't get on channel 16 and pull the whole Smokey and the Bandit script. You know, <laughs> Breaker 1, now, come on, Coast Guard, get them ears on. You know, get some training, get some etiquette there, learn the proper way to... Don't to let operate your absolutely. VHF. Don't let the kids get a hold of it and start yeah. saying Mayday and thing. I don't know. We were yeah. on a, a safety patrol one time and uh, here, actually, it wasn't even a Mayday. They called for help, which is weird. I'm like, who initiates like a fake help call? Yeah. Like, it wasn't, you All know, whatever. Time. And so I hear, help, 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 just like that. And I'm like, we, we, there's a help call on 16. And I'm telling our coxswain. And, and station picked up immediately. And then, like, the, this lady came back. She was like, those, those, are, those are kids. I'm sorry. And they were like, we need your name and your cell phone number. And it was like dead silence. Like, like, that information. Yeah. Probably not. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah the importance of that stuff is just, it's huge. You know, have that stuff. Make sure you're checking your batteries and your EPIRBs. And that's just, that's, if you're going to leave everything else at home, take that stuff with you. Yeah. Maximum planning maximum. for maximum <laughs> flexibility. I like it. All right. I well, like Senior, it. thanks for coming out. We really appreciate you coming in here. This is, you do add so much uh, charge to us to get, you know, participation from active duty personnel. Now with you and Captain Bear and Chief Gazillo, we just couldn't thank you enough for coming in. And Yeah, well, thank, thank you for having me. This is a really cool thing. I was thinking on my way over here, I've done lots of news interviews and radio interviews. I think my, this is my first podcast. So yeah, it's, it's a lot it's more a very, fun. It's a it? very cool thing you guys are doing. I hope yeah. you keep it up. Well, good, good. Thanks for coming. Uh, Kelsey, we appreciate your work this week. Uh, Matt, Mr. Barry back there working, doing the sound check. Um, thank you for uh, listening to Coffee with Coasty. Go to uh, coffeewithcoasties.com, like and subscribe, leave us any comments if you have suggestions, and follow us on our Facebook, and we'll see you next time. Have a question or topic request? Reach out to us at www.coffeewithcoasties.com. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there.